This is the Axiom Podcast, Episode 8. Another edition of the Axiom Podcast. I'm Joey Brandon, your host, and today we're going to be talking about the 800-pound gorilla of strategic planning. It's going to be a lot of fun, and this comes straight out of my experience of doing strategic planning inside companies of all different sizes, and the number one thing that I see uh, everybody kind of stop and look at their shoes uh, when we bring this topic up. So we're going to talk, I'm, I'm going to wait. It's a little bit of a tease because it's going to be a while until we get to the 800 pound gorilla, but, um, there's gonna be a lot of useful stuff in between it. And when we get to the gorilla, you're all going to understand exactly why people look at their shoes and why this is such an issue inside companies. But it, it basically comes down to asking people to commit, but in a very specific way. So, before we get to that, I would like to thank all of you who have been leaving reviews on iTunes. Um, we're trying to get this podcast out there. We're trying to get it noticed, and nothing helps us like testimonials. So when people are cruising through the podcast uh, or they get a link uh, from somebody who says, hey, take a listen to this, if there are positive reviews on there and you're sharing your experience and, and how the podcast is useful to you, it goes a long way to getting other people to, to subscribe. And we're not just looking for flat-out five-star reviews. Of course, I'd love that. But be honest. Uh, if, if you want to rate it a four out of five or a three out of five or a one out of five, all the feedback's welcome. It's only going to help me get better at what I do. But uh, I do crave your feedback. I love to listen to the audience. One of the things that I really enjoy about doing the strategic planning work is the interaction and on the podcast, I have the benefit of being able to share a lot of the stuff that I've learned and that I come across, but what I miss is the interaction. So there's a couple of ways for you to do that. The iTunes review obviously helps, but every show has a, a, a blog entry on our website, and the show notes are all there. If we talk about specific products or resources or things like that, there will be links to those in the show notes. And for this show, you can find those show notes at axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 008. So if there's something particularly interesting to you about this podcast or you get a specific point out or you have a point of feedback or a point of difference or you just say, hey, this guy's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Then go to the uh, show notes there at the uh, axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 008. Click on the comments feed. And um, and leave your comment there, and we can start a discussion. And it also leads to follow-up. Some of the times, well, it's usually been offline. Uh, listeners will contact me and say, hey, what about this? And last week we had a whole show that came out of um, a comment from Paul Carson of Thrival who, who said, hey, you know, what do you do in a team environment with this time and task management stuff? So the feedback is very important, and it, it also is a good jumping-off point for more content. So let's get into today's discussion and we're talking about the 800-pound gorilla in strategic planning. Before we get into kind of specifics of what, what the 800-pound gorilla is, one of the things that, that, that came out of the podcast, so episode three, it was time and task management. And that's by far, if you look at the stats for downloads, that episode has gotten more downloads than any of the other episodes that we've done. Time and task management is one of those things that just resonates with people. Everybody wants to know how to get better at time management. And the reason they want to know how to get better at time management is because everybody kind of intuitively understands that that is the thing that's holding them back. That's the thing that if they were to make a positive change, it would make a bigger difference there than any other thing that they could do. So it, you know, people are smart about what's what's holding them. Sometimes they don't know, but this is one of those cases where people know what's holding them back. So, when you talk about time and task management, that comes up a lot in coaching situations. And some of you have heard me talk at length about the difference between coaching and consulting. And I did um, a guest episode on the Thrivecast with Greg Kite and Jason Blummer a couple weeks ago, where 
I spent some time talking about how I differentiate between coaching and consulting, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But there's a lot of differences between coaching and consulting, but one one of the key factors, I think, is that coaching tends to be done on the individual level. You're usually coaching individuals. You're not coaching companies. Now, the company might be your client, and so you go and you coach for the company, but you don't coach the company. You coach individual leaders within the company. Whereas the consulting aspect, especially strategic planning, you don't strategic plan with individuals. You strategic plan for the entire organization. And yes, there are different individuals who are tasked with certain responsibilities in the strategic plan, but the plan itself is an organizational plan. So if time and task management is the one thing that holds individuals back from performance, the same corollary could be true for organizations. But what is the time and task management uh, kind of equivalent for an organization? Well, it's resources. And resources, resource management is a lot like time management, except at the organizational level. So we're going to spend the bulk of today's time talking about resources not resource management so much as resource allocation. Resource management, I mean, that's that's such a broad to- topic. It gets into stewardship and all kinds of other things. But we're going to talk about the decision, the commitment point of resource allocation. And one of the things that I I think you have to wrap your arms around is that when it comes to resource allocation, there, it, it is a decision point. So you don't gradually allocate resources. Um, I, you, technically, you can, but you have to decide that you're going to allocate the resource. And I'll give you a, a good example from my personal life of the distinction that I'm trying to talk about here. So one of the one of the goals that I've had for a lot. I'm 41 years old now. So about my early 30s. Like I started feeling things slow down, right? And, and my metabolism slowed down and my athletic performance slowed down. And I was playing indoor soccer and I remember getting injured. Uh, I was playing softball. I remember getting injured. I never got injured. I play, I've played sports my entire life and played sports in college and never got injured. Um, but all of a sudden I turned 30 and stuff started to break. And so, you know, I wanted to get in better shape. Well, at the same time, your metabolism slows down and you start to put on weight. And so I've always had this aspiration to get into better shape. And for for as long as I can remember, I've had gym memberships, YMCA memberships, health club memberships. Um, and until about three months ago, I can honestly say the last five, six, seven, maybe eight years um, – I had a very, very poor track record of consistently working out and and improving my athletic performance, improving my overall fitness, even improving my diet. And I, I got introduced to a new gym uh, about three months ago, and the difference has been phenomenal for me personally. And as I look back and go, why is there such – I've been paying for gym memberships forever, for as long as I can remember, why in the last three months is there all of a sudden such a difference? And for me personally, it comes down to resource allocation. So here's here's what happened. In all those other gyms, they're, they're pretty much set up like the, the typical place you would go to work out where they have some programming, some – some uh, classes, so you, they, you know they have a schedule. If you want to do Zumba, you can do it this time frame. If you want to do a salsa aerobics class, you can do it this time frame. And if you want to do less meals, you can do this time frame. But the mo- most of the people don't sign up for the classes. Most of the people just come in and they go to the the big room that has all the cardio equipment in it, and all the weight machines in it, and all the free weights in it. And especially guys, I think the classes there are more women who sign up for the classes, but the guys, they typically just show up and it's like, I don't want to lift something heavy. And so they go in and they work out. But when they work out, it's completely up to them. So if I'm going to go to the gym today, uh, unless I'm meeting somebody, and I've never never been somebody who really worked out um, with a partner or anything like Sometimes I would, but it wasn't a set thing. So if I wanted to go to the gym today, I would 
you know, being like, oh, I'll go after work or I'll go before work. So let's, I'm, I like to work out in the morning. So like, oh, well, I'll go on, I'll go in the morning. Well, say originally I planned to get there at six thirty, and uh, I when I got up and got my cup of coffee, I found a really interesting article, and it was by the time I finished the article, it was six forty five. And then it was 7 o'clock because the kids woke up and I started talking to them. And before I knew it, it was 7.15 and I got an 8.30 appointment and now I don't have time to go. And part of the problem for me was that I could go anytime. And so then I go, well, I've got this appointment, but then I don't have a lot of stuff this afternoon. So I'll I'll quit early and at 3.30, um, I'll go to the gym. And then you know what happens at 3 o'clock. Um, you get you're already into a project and you don't really want to stop and it doesn't let up until 4:30 and then you're not going to be able to go and get back in time for dinner and pretty soon the gym is off the schedule for the day. You started with the right intention, but because you could go at any time, it it basically failed to get the resources it needed because there was too much latitude. So here's what happens in this new gym: um, everybody is in a class. You don't you can't. I guess you could, but you probably have to get permission to just go whenever you wanted to and work out. But everybody's in a class, and it's a it's a CrossFit gym. So every day there are certain things that you have to do, and there's a time frame when you have to do them. So there's a 6 o'clock class and a 9 o'clock class and a 5 o'clock class and a 6 o'clock and a 7 o'clock class, I think. So I like to work out in the morning. But if I want to work out in the morning – it's not that I could go at 6 or 6.10 or 6.30 or 6.45 or 7.50. No, if I want to work out in the morning, I have to be there at 6 o'clock sharp. As a matter of fact, this morning, uh, I hit. I thought I hit the snooze button, but I didn't actually turn the alarm clock off at 5.30 or so. And uh, I woke up right at 6 o'clock. Now, it only takes me 10 minutes to get from my basically – when my feet hit the floor to get to the gym, it takes it only takes me about 10 minutes. So I could have been there by 6.10, but that's too late. If you can't be there at 6 o'clock sharp, it's too late. So what's happened is that I've begun allocating very specific amounts of my time to this activity because I have no other choice. I had to make a decision about exactly when I was going to go to the gym. And before, I did not have to make a decision about what, this, what specific time I would arrive. And the other thing that, that's nice about this, uh, this arrangement, this, these classes that I go to, is they are exactly an hour. So I know that I have to be there at exactly 6 a.m. And I know that at exactly 7 a.m., I, if I so choose, I can walk out the door and go on with the rest of my day. So it gives me a very definite bookended um, amount of resources that I have to allocate. I have to allocate roughly an hour and 20 minutes every single day, 10 minutes to get there, an hour to work out, and 10 minutes to get home. And that has made all the difference in me making progress toward my goal. And it all had to do with deciding how much of a resource I was going to allocate. So the number one difference between progress – and stalling when it comes to strategic planning is resource allocation, deciding what you're going to commit to the strategic plan. And when I say progress, I don't mean that the things that we're going to talk about as far as allocating resources is going to guarantee the success of your strategic plan. N- nobody can guarantee the success of your strategic plan. And a lot of the people that you hear talk about um, – the fact that they don't use strategic planning, that it's useless, that the world's moving too fast for strategic planning. A lot of it, I think their disdain for it has to do with its uncertainty. We can't predict the future. As hard as we plan, as much time as we spend, as much brainstorming as we do, as many SWOT analysis as as we perform, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can predict it, and we can try to get the best information and the best thinking and the, and the greatest amount of creativity around our planning so that we have a higher degree of certainty about what we think our prediction is going to, to do. But at the end of the day, we can't predict the future. So we don't know whether the strategic 
plan that we put in place is going to work. It all comes down to the the strategies that we decide to pursue. Like there's another decision there. You have to decide of all the strategies that are available to you, which ones are we going to pursue to grow this organization or and accomplish the goals that we've set. And if we believe that that's the best strategy, we're obviously basing that on some pretty good data, but we don't know for sure that that's the best strategy. But here's the deal. If you'll face down the 800-pound gorilla and you'll do the resource allocation that we're about to talk about, you will at least make progress, and you'll make progress in one of two directions. You'll make progress toward success, which we certainly hope is the case, or you'll make progress toward failure. For purposes of what I'm talking about today, those are both equally good. It does, it, as far as I'm concerned right now, in terms of addressing the number one problem that keeps companies from doing successful strategic planning, I don't care whether you succeed or fail. I just want you to make progress toward one or the other because if we fail, then what do we know? We know that the strategy we decided to pursue is not the best one, and we can go back to the planning table. We can regather our data. We can redo the analysis. We can get creative minds back in the room, and we can come up with plan B. But here's what happens in almost every company that has had a sour experience with strategic planning. They do the planning. They get the creative minds in the room. They do the analysis. They gather the data, and they they come up with what they believe is the greatest strategic plan, the best of all the options to get them from point A to point B and grow this organization. And then they stall. Nothing happens after that because they don't face down this 800-pound gorilla and do the resource allocation, and they fail to make progress. Now, they're not failing. The strategic plan hasn't failed. It's even worse than that. Nobody knows whether it's going to fail or succeed. So my goal, my hope, is that if you're going to embark on this strategic planning journey, you at least make the progress that's going to tell you whether you are succeeding or failing. And that's what we can do if we face down the 800-pound gorilla. So I'll give you another example personally of how this resource allocation thing works. I've known for a long time. I mean, so my background in starting in 1995 with graduation, I went to work in my my family CPA firm. I was there for about four years, and um, I learned a tremendous amount from my dad. I got unbelievable exposure to all different facets of accounting, whether it was audit or tax work or uh, compilations or agreed upon procedures. I mean, he basically let me have the run of the place as far as picking engagements went and what I wanted to get involved in. But I left that after four years and I did uh, some stuff in private controllership, CFO type work, and I got back into public accounting and, you know, basically spent my entire career waking up and giving my time to clients who pay me for the expertise that I've acquired. Now, there's a lot of talk in the profession about um, getting rid of timesheets and value pricing. I'm not going to get into any of that today. I firmly believe that value pricing is the way to go. But even if you're value pricing, there's still a sense where you're selling your time from the standpoint that if you don't spend time on client work, you don't get paid. So that's the trade-off. So I wake up every day, and I know that if I go work for clients – and it doesn't matter how long it takes me, but I have to go spend some time for clients. There are, there are no trolls running around. They're going to run out and do the work for me. If I work for clients on the projects that they've hired me to help them implement, then I will get paid. If I decide to wake up in the morning, get in my car, drive to the airport in Tampa, and fly to Bermuda for two weeks, guess what? I'm not going to make any money for two weeks. Because I'm not doing the things time-wise to earn that money from clients. So I've known for a long time that I wanted to break that cycle. But the way that you break that cycle is you develop intellectual property that clients will pay for whether you show up or not, whether it's you delivering the service or not. So there are a number of uh, 
of ideas that I compiled over the years for what this intellectual property should be, who it should be marketed to, how it should be developed, and all of that stuff. That that happened probably 10 years ago. And until very recently, none of it went anywhere. It wasn't until I decided that I am not going to take any appointments on Fridays at all, and the only thing that I'm going to do on Fridays is develop content and intellectual property and focus on the marketing to get those products actually sold and get dollars in, not from spending time but from selling the intellectual property that's developed. The intellectual property was there the whole time. Like it was, it was in my brain. The idea for doing this has been there for 10 years. But it's only been in the last year and a half that I decided that I was going to allocate the resource of Fridays to doing that content development. And since I made the decision to allocate the resource and started doing that, all of a sudden now we have intellectual property that's being sold and it's generating revenue whether or not I'm actually doing the work. So when you, when you talk about that decision, that specific decision, what I decided to do was allocate 20% of my available time, which was the fundamental resource at play. There were some actual dollars that had to go into it too. I had to spend some money on, um, on hardware. I had to spend some money on software. I had to spend some money on additional content that would help me develop my content. I had to spend some money on services for people who would help me develop that content. Uh, I had to pay some money for people who helped me market that content. But the by far the biggest investment was time, and making the decision to allocate 20% of my time required me to do a lot of things that we're going to talk about next, which was actually look at how much time did I have available. What what I had to take stock of my resource inventory and say, what do I have at my disposal that I can commit to this project? Uh, another client of mine I was actually meeting with just this week, and we were actually doing the exact same thing with him because he has – he knows that he's in a profession, a medical profession, where he trades his time for money. Now, he doesn't give clients a timesheet, but if he's not there to see the patients, he does not generate an income. And he's incredibly uh, gifted in his field. And he's definitely a visionary in the field of medicine that he practices. And he has a ton of intellectual property. And he has the charisma and the communication skills to effectively get that out to the masses and become the face of these great ideas and and these great systems that he has. But he hasn't spent the time to actually develop it because he's never made the decision to allocate the resources. So – the decision was made this week that he's going to commit 20% of his time, as it so happens also on Fridays, to developing, not doing anything else but developing this intellectual property that's going to be the future of his practice. So when you talk about what this looks like from an organizational level, we've already said it. It's all about resources. But what do we mean by resources? Well, by far, by the number one resource that I would highlight and tease out first is leadership time. And I don't just mean don't just mean the business owner. We're talking about the entire leadership team there. So uh, in a lot of businesses that I work with, so give you some background on what when I go into companies, they're typically companies between two and twenty million dollars. Sometimes they're bigger, but most of the companies that are kind of the sweet spot for strategic planning and see huge gains initially. Uh, are two to twenty million dollars, and those companies will have a business owner, and they'll usually have three or four direct reports to the business owner that head up different other teams in the organization. So, there'll be a sales team, there'll be a customer service team, there'll be an operations team, uh, whatever. So, th- there are when we talk about leadership time, we're not just talking about the business owner; we're talking about these. Uh, this leadership team that consists of the owner and the three or four direct reports that report to the owner, how much time of theirs do they have personally available? And when you ask them this question initially, it's funny because the answer is always the same. They don't have any time. You know, these people got to where they are um, 
by finding their own work, right? They're self-starters. They're the people who, they don't just show up every morning and go, I wonder what I'm going to work on today. They're thinking about it all weekend. Um, when they go to bed at night, they're thinking about business problems. When they wake up in the morning, they've solved a few of them. When they come into the office, they start getting busy fixing things or addressing problems or getting their team to the next level. The leaders in these companies got their promotions and got their leadership position because they're pretty good at identifying stuff around them that needs their time. And it's rare that they only find 30 hours worth a week or 30 hours worth of stuff in a week to do, and they just go, oh, you know, actually I have an extra 10 hours this week because I got everything else done. No. If they finish with that 30 hours, they go looking for something to invest their other 10 hours of time in. So when you say to the leadership team, how much time do you guys have to commit to this strategic plan, none of them have any time on a weekly basis to commit to this plan. So what you have to do is decide what they're going to give up. And there's some very uh, helpful uh, kind of processes or tools, techniques in uh, Peter Drucker's book, The Effective Executive, about logging your time and actually seeing where your time goes. And sometimes on the coaching side of things, we'll sit down with those individuals and say, hey, for the next week or two weeks, I want you to log all of your time. Like, what do you do on a daily basis? And then we'll categorize that. And then we'll take a red pen and we'll start saying, well, these are things that you shouldn't be doing. And so we can actually go through and get rid of maybe 10 hours worth of stuff so they have extra time on their calendar to commit to the strategic plan. And not necessarily the the planning part of it, but the implementation part of it. But until you can do that, there's really not a whole lot of point in doing the planning because here's the deal. Every leader can mandate that their direct reports join them for a two-day offsite to do a strategic plan. And this is what typically happens. You know, the word comes down from on high that on December 7th and 8th, uh, you know, and it's maybe two or three months away, on December 7th and 8th, we're all going to such-and-such Ritz-Carlton Resort, and we're going to develop the strategic plan uh, for the next for the upcoming year. And it's three months away, so all of the leaders kind of carve those two blocks of time out on their calendar, and then they go off, and they, they've, they, they're at their best. You know, they're kind of at ease because – They've prepared for this. There's nothing weighing on their mind. If they were given enough advance notice, um, you know, they've told people that they're going to be out of the office. They have rescheduled any meetings that normally would fall during that time, and they're in a beautiful setting, and there's not a whole lot of time pressure, and there's not a whole lot of operational pressure. If the leader's smart, all the cell phones went into a basket at the beginning of the meeting, and everybody's fully engaged and committed And for two days, they put their best thinking on paper about what the strategic plan should be. And then they all leave. They play golf before they go, and they get home. And Monday morning shows up, and they all have 50 hours worth of work to do. And nothing has been allocated work-wise in terms of their leadership time to the strategic plan execution. And this goes on in week one, and everybody kind of gets a reprieve in week one because, after all, they missed two days last week. So the business owner knows that they need to spend some time catching up, and he's catching up or she's catching up because the emails were piling up and she didn't have time to answer them while she was leading this retreat. And so she gets it, and everybody's head down for the next week. They put in their 50 hours, do their best to get caught up the second week. Some fire crops up and a major customer is unhappy and two or three members of the leadership team are involved in solving that. And in the third week, eh, people just kind of forget about it because they're all tired from the previous two weeks. And then the fourth week, somebody mentions the strategic plan, but they've kind of forgotten what the immediate action items were that they were supposed to do. So they schedule another meeting to set up time to do that. You get the You get the idea. And where did it all start? It started because... They went. They carved out the time for the planning, but nobody decided how much of a resource they were going to commit as far as the leader's time to execution and implementation after they were done with the plan. So the number one resource is the leadership's time. The second resource is team member time. So it's, it's not often the case that it's just the leaders who go out there and execute the plan. You have to have some real-life employees who are also out there making things happen. 
So if the strategic plan called for uh, opening up into a new service market, for instance, that's maybe one county over, then somebody actually has to go drive the trucks into that market and service those customers. Salespeople actually have to go make sales calls in those in that new territory. Marketing dollars have to be spent in that new territory. So I'll get to marketing dollars in a second, but the team member time is the next most important thing. So when you're when you get down to the brass tacks of yes, this is the great this is the great almighty strategy that we're going to hitch our horse to for the next year or two to pursue business growth. Um, who are the leaders who are going to to head this up, and how much of their time is going to be needed? It's probably everybody on the leadership team is going to be involved at some point. So you have to decide how much time are they going to be able to spend on this, and then which employees are going to be able to do this, and if employees are going to have to split their time between current responsibilities and something in the strategic plan that requires them to be a part of it, how much of their time is going to go to that split? Is it going to be overtime, or are we going to take responsibilities off of them? If we don't have any uh, employees who can do that, then we may have to invest um, more payroll dollars, actually go and get new employees to help with that kind of stuff. So leadership time is the number one resource that you have to decide to allocate Team member time is the second most important resource that you have to decide to allocate. Um, And then we get into existing equipment, existing fixed assets, existing facilities. So things like, uh, you know, if we're going to push into that territory next door in that adjacent county, uh, do we have a couple of trucks sitting in the yard that we're not using that are going to be used to service that? Do we have, um, you know, do we have, sales material already printed that we're going to put over there? Do we have a facility there that is just not being used right now? Or do we have um, additional capacity in our existing facility that can service that? You know, what is the, what's the plan for the actual hard assets that we're going to need over there? Do we have enough tools to to outfit those additional crews? All of that stuff um, take stock of what you currently have. So it's not just do the people have additional capacity in their schedule to work on this stuff. Do you actually have enough stuff to make this happen? Or are you going to have to go out and buy it? And that gets to the fourth resource. So leader, I'm just going to, I'm going to beat this one to death. Leadership time is the number one resource you have to allocate. Team member time, employee time is the number two resource you have to allocate. Uh, Fixed assets, existing equipment, hard goods, inventory, that kind of stuff, facilities. I'll just call it, I'll call it all fixed assets. So existing assets is the third most important thing that you have to allocate. And if you don't have resources to allocate in one of those three areas, the fourth thing that you have to decide to allocate is cash. And this is one of those things that some companies get and some companies just never get. I, I can't, it's funny because it's hard for me to make believers out of people who aren't believers about the need to invest cash resources. And it usually goes something like this. So we decide that we, on this strategy and we take stock of our existing inventory so that we know what we have to, um, to work with. And it's not enough, and we know that we're going to have to go out and get more stuff, whether that's employees, that could be leaders. We might have an open position on the leadership platform that we need to fill. It could be employees that we have to go out and hire, or it could be stuff that we have to go buy. And the companies that get it go, okay, so we have uh, this much in cash reserves. We can afford to allocate you know, $100,000 to this project or – $500,000 or a million dollars, or maybe they say we've got $500,000 of our own money that will commit to this initiative, but we're going to leverage that against a line of credit for another million. So we're going to have, you know, one third of it is going to be cash and two thirds of it's going to be financed. And here's our plan for repaying that financing. But they get it. They understand that, hey, if we don't have the stuff now and we have to go buy the stuff, we've got to come up with the cash for it. The companies who don't get it usually look at it this way. They say, 
well, this is a plan to grow the company, right? Yeah, that's what this is all about. Well, and, and we've defined growing the company as growing profits, right? Yeah, that's exactly how we've defined it. And growing profits is going to grow cash reserves, right? Yeah, that's the plan, grow cash reserves. Uh, okay, so let's just start implementing, and then we'll use the cash from the growth to fund the purchase of the resources. And a lot of you listening hopefully see how backwards that is. But understand where these businesses are coming from. A lot of times, this is exactly what they did to start the business. They bootstrapped, right? They they worked 60, 70 hours a week to keep from hiring the next employee until the additional cash came in and they could afford to go hire that employee. They played... Um, not games, but they were very good at arranging terms with suppliers to make sure that the bills that had to go out to pay for the the stuff they were purchasing uh, were due after the cash was collected from the customer. And you can do that. I mean, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. They're very savvy, very smart ways to grow a business. But understand, again, we're talking about companies in this $2 to $20 million space where your ability to bootstrap and affect major organizational change is fairly limited because you're talking about large chunks of resource allocation. And the bigger the strategic play, the longer typically it's going to take to play out. So if we're talking about moving into a whole new territory, well, guess what? That cash may not show up in the first 90 days. It may not even show up in the first 180 days. We're typically, and a lot of these plays are looking at a payback period, a targeted payback period of somewhere between 18 months and three years with a two-year sweet spot. So we're saying all the money that we put into this thing is going to be recouped within a year to two years, and then after that, it's all gravy. Well, a year to two years is a long time to bootstrap, and and it usually will outstrip the available resources. It'll burn the people out. Or it'll use up all the equipment and stuff will start to break and you won't be able to replace it because you, don't have, you haven't arranged for the cash resource to invest. So you have to face the facts of taking stock of your inventory. And if you don't have enough stuff, either people or physical stuff, to make the strategic plan happen, you got to come up with the cash from somewhere. And if you don't have the cash in your own pocket, hopefully it's in your banks. And if you're okay with taking on the debt and it makes sense in the situation, then you go out and you bite the bullet even though you don't like the idea of monthly payments and you invest it's better to do that than it is to f- delude yourself into thinking you're going to be able to bootstrap this major strategic initiative and what happens we've already said what happens what happens when you fail to allocate resources you don't succeed but you don't fail either you just stall out and that's what i see happen in companies that don't decide to bite the bullet and allocate the cash. They think, well, we'll bootstrap, and then the bootstrapping gets things underway initially, but they very quickly, uh, their resource need quickly outstrips their ability to bootstrap. And so no new resources go into the strategic initiative, and it just sits there, and nothing happens. That territory never gets opened up. It never gets exploited. The sales never really begin to grow and and become self-sustaining, and it just becomes one of these things that sits on a plan. It's not losing a lot of money. Um, Maybe it's breaking even, but it's not making any money either, and we don't even know whether that would be. A lot of times they'll pull the plug and they go, oh, they didn't work. Well, when you actually look at it, the reason it didn't work, it never even had a chance to work because the resources weren't there. So when you talk about the the idea of allocating the resources. One of the things you have to do with the plan, and this might be a little bit of a segue, but I think it makes sense at this part of the discussion. When you're doing the plan, the same way that you have to dedicate a specific amount of resources, you have to decide in the plan or estimate in the plan or decide as best you can, calculate as best you can, what the payoff is going to be. I mentioned payback period. Payback period is simply the amount of time it takes us to earn back our initial investment in the business. And like I said, in some really, really high-growth businesses or some smaller strategic planning initiatives, the payback period can be almost immediate, like three months, six months. But when you're talking about a bigger initiative, you could be investing dollars for uh, 
10 to 12 months and then not have to invest anymore. And it could take you another 10 to 12 months to earn that investment back. So you'd be looking at a, basically a two-year payback period there. Well, how long then is that money going to continue to earn out? Because if all you did was invest $100,000 to get $100,000 back and then after that two-year payback period, it, the $100,000 stopped coming in because the, the strategy kind of had an inherently limited life, then uh, so what? You know, we spun our wheels for two years. But what you hope is that you're going to spend $100,000, and over the next two years, you're going to earn that $100,000 back. And then every year after that, for the next 10 years, you're going to earn an additional $100,000. And using those numbers and time value money and all that other stuff you learned in finance class in undergrad school, you can calculate your return on investment. But you have to have an expectation for what the strategy is going to add to the bottom line. That's that that happens all in the planning phase. When you're evaluating which strategies you want to pursue, you're trying to pursue the strategies that are going to have the highest overall return. So you're you're naturally looking at comparing strategies against one another going, "Hey, this one's going to return 100,000 for the next 10 years. This one's only going to return 100,000 in maybe the next 2 to 3 years. And it's going to cost us that much to get into the business. So it's really not as good a, a strategy as this other one." So you've decided what the payoff is going to be. If you go to the second step, when you start implementing and you specifically allocate the resources, then you can determine your exact return on investment on that strategy. And let me tell you, when you're talking about getting a company to wrap their arms around the idea of intentional growth fueled by strategic planning, there's no better convincing evidence, no better, I don't even know if that's a, proper grammar, but there's there's no better evidence than an ROI figure that's real. Like, okay, we invested $501,349.15 into this initiative. That's what it took to get this off the ground. We, we got our CPA to specifically set up a section of the chart of accounts so we can track this stuff. We know exactly how much it, got, it, it took to get in. We set up our, our record-keeping system so that we could track the dollars that came back in, and we know that for that 501000 over the first three years, we made $2.3 million, and that gave us you know, an ROI of X percent. And you go, this planning stuff actually works. It comes down to dollars and cents. And again, we're talking about the 800-pound gorilla in the room. This is the thing, the thing that keeps companies from being successful in their strategic planning. Even the companies that fail, if they are disciplined about it, will iterate their strategic plan and come back and succeed, if not the second time, definitely the third time, if not the third time, certainly the fourth time. I've never seen a company go 0 for 4 in strategic initiatives. I don't know that I've seen a company who's committed to the process ever go 0 for 3. Um, I've seen companies go 0 for 1 and then go 1 for 2 because the second time they learned a hell of a lot and they are they learned in the actual failure of the first strategic plan what the plan should have been all along and they were able to pivot, even use some of the resources they had initially allocated to the first strategic initiative to the second one mid-stride and turn things around pretty quickly. But when... When companies will discipline themselves not only to forecast what the actual um, return is going to be in terms of dollars coming back in over what period of time, but how much of a specific dollar resource they're going to allocate to it to get it off the ground, they can forecast these returns. And then if they go to the second step to measure the stuff that comes back in, set up the system so they know exactly how much they spent to the dollar and exactly how much they brought back into the dollar, they'll have benchmarks. And over time, they'll understand whether that particular leadership team is more optimistic than it should be in its forecasts of return on investment or more pessimistic. And that's very important when it comes to the leadership and deciding whether or not to pursue two competing strategies or whether there's a go-no-go decision on a particular strategy. If it's just kind of marginally within the accepted limits – 
and we know that the team is fairly pessimistic, we'll go ahead and give it a green light. If it's only marginally within our acceptable limits for return, and we know that the team is very optimistic, we're going to give it a red light. But you don't know whether it's optimistic or pessimistic until you go through the exercise of forecasting the return and the resource allocation that's going to be required, and then the the discipline of tracking the actual return that comes in and the actual resources that go out. So I may have spent a little bit more time on that than than was useful, but uh, that's where the discipline of the process really helps separate the real players who get strategic planning right and use it to grow businesses at compound rates of 25, 30, 40 percent a year from those that just kind of hum along at cost of living increases. So this stuff really does work, but it's a discipline. You have to you have to commit the time and energy to it. So when we talk about strategic planning, we're we're going to wrap up here, but when we talk about strategic planning, there's there's the strategizing, which is that's kind of like the offsite retreat. That's where everybody goes out for the rah-rah meeting and they they loosen their ties and they put on their their um casual slacks and they sit around the first night and drink martinis and the second day they get the flip charts out and sit on plush couches and philosophize about where this business could go and what how we could take over the world and then by the second or third day they've got some some actual strategies that they want to take out and push the company toward that's all strategizing okay that's fun stuff i love that stuff i love to facilitate it i love to do it for my own business Lots of business leaders who are visionaries just eat this stuff up. It's kind of fuel for the soul. Then you get into the planning part, and sometimes this will this will happen, um, especially if you. It'll, sometimes it'll happen at that offsite or at that annual planning meeting, especially if you have members of the leadership team who are implementers. You know, they're the people who. Yeah, all this theory stuff is great, but I just want to roll up my sleeves. Or you have like engineers or accountants on the leadership team, problem solvers, people who, yeah, the, yeah, the vision stuff is cool. I like that. I like what you're saying. I can buy into that. Uh, but to really sink my teeth into it, I need a problem to solve. So let's start defining the problem and how we're going to solve it. That's the planning stage. So you have the strategizing stage and they have the planning stage. And the planning stage is all about scoping out the projects that you're going to um, start to work on for that year, basically. What are the big projects? What are the sub-projects? How are you going to delegate them? What are the stages? What are the milestones? What are all that stuff that we have to to know what's expected of, of whom when? And then you have the implementation phase. And the implementation is what we've been talking about. And this is where I, you know, as much as I enjoy the strategizing part I've done it long enough to realize that everybody can be great at strategizing. With a good facilitator, almost every leadership team can do an equally good job of strategizing. Maybe with a great facilitator, an equally great job of strategizing. And I like to facilitate that stuff because I I love I just love that process. But I mean, I would like to think that a higher percentage of my clients are good at implementing because we specifically address implementation and the due diligence before we decide to take a client on. And we're asking ourselves, are these people going to be good at implementing? Are they going to be capable of implementing? Um, and one of the things we also would look at is, do they have the resources? Because that's that's the key to implementation. But so I, I like to think that our clients are above average in this area, kind of like everybody thinks their children are above average. But when you look at the landscape as a whole, if five organizations take on strategic planning in some kind of annual retreat or annual process where they try to plan out what's going to happen for the next year, I would say of those five, one will actually go the next step and do the implementation well. And the reason for it is because they don't face down the 800-pound gorilla and they don't allocate the resources. So the last stage, allocating the resources and going to work, I think some some practical suggestions I have for you here. You heard me talk about taking inventory uh, of of the resources that you have. And so here's what I would suggest. There's some some questions that I think companies ask, and we get our clients to answer all of these. 
before we start implementing the strategic plan, we take stock of our resources, inventory our resources. So the first question is, what do we have to work with? Um, that's kind of the meta question. What that means is how much time did the leaders have? Go around the room. How much time do each of you have to commit to this? If you were to stop doing some things on your calendar, uh, stop doing some things on your weekly to-do list, how much time could you give us just to work on this plan? Um, in some large or, you know, the interesting thing is once you get up to that, sometimes it's over $10 million, but sometimes it takes – 15 to 20 million. Um, you know, some, it's not uncommon in a $20 million company to hear a leader say, um, well, not all of it, but 90% of it. I mean, after all, this is the most important thing we have to do, right? <laughs> and you really like to hear that from the CEO or the, the owner of the company. If the owner of the company comes back and says, I can spend 100% of my time on this strategic plan. It means that they've already given over operational control to their leadership team, and that's a very good spot to be in. I talked to a gentleman and his wife uh, about a week and a half ago um, who, frankly, you know, may not need all that much help from me because he's in a place where he's pretty much given over complete operational control to his employees, and he's not really changing the strategic course of the business. They're kind of on a, uh, a growth track that they want to maintain, and they just have to execute well to keep maintaining that growth track. Now, where we might be able to help them is working with the leadership team because once he steps away from the business, that leadership team is going to have to be able to carve out some of their time to work on strategic plans for the future. And so, you know, that might be an opportunity for us. But, you know, it's interesting when you hear a business owner say, uh, I've got all the time in the world to work on this because I really don't have anything else to do. That means they've been very effective at giving operational control over to their team members. So how much time do the leaders have is is an important question to ask. Who else can help? And this is where the leaders are looking down line at their team members and their direct reports going, who who on my team has time or who can we make time for that's going to be able to work on this? Do they have the tools that they need? Is there stuff that they're going to need to do this job that we don't have yet, or do they have everything? If if they don't have what they need, how much is it going to cost? Where is the money going to come from to buy it? Uh, when are we, and then you get, get away from resource allocation a little bit into when are we going to start, what are we going to measure, and when are we going to finish or change what we measure. So I want to talk about these last three because this is the 800-pound gorilla. I've referenced it many times in the podcast, and you think that the 800-pound gorilla is resource allocation. It's not. The 800-pound gorilla is not resources. It's not a fancy word like resource allocation. The 800-pound gorilla is the calendar sitting in front of every one of those leaders that's in the room, whether it's on their um, smartphone or whether it's on their iPad or whether it's on their laptop that's in front of them or whether they have an old-fashioned day timer Franklin Covey planner sitting out there. The 800-pound gorilla is their calendar because when you say, how much time do you have to give to this? That's a, that's a hypothetical question. And the reason it's hypothetical is because it's hypothetical because what you're saying is, if I spend time on this, how much time would I be able to spend? And by definition, that's a hypothetical question. If I were to do this, how much time would I be able to spend? It doesn't really have a basis in reality because it has a condition in front of it. And unless the condition becomes true, the answer to the question really doesn't mean anything. We can use it to make judgments, but as far as getting us to where we want to go, making things happen, the answer to that question doesn't give us any, get us anywhere. So very quickly in the implementation phase. So we've, we've talked about how much time do you have? Um, who's going to help you? Do they have the tools that they need? If they don't have the tools that they need, how much is it going to cost? And we, remember, we've also already kind of scoped out the project. So we know what, you know, we, we, we know the framework or kind of the skeleton of what needs to be done next. So the next question is, okay, when are you going to do it? So, for instance, we'll go back to that 
uh, example I made up on the fly earlier. See if I can flesh this out and make it work. This might be dangerous, but so let's say that one of our, the strategy that we pursued is to move into an adjacent county and start working on our stuff there. And the so one of the things that has to be done is that our contracts have to be updated to uh, be sold in this county because this county has some ordinances that require modifications to our contract. Okay, so one of the first things that has to be done, like, you know, we want to sell and we want to start marketing, but we can't do that until our stuff is in compliance or we could get in trouble. So one of the first things that happen is the contract has to get modified. And we're going to task the sales manager, since it's his primary documentation, he's the person who's going to be responsible for that. So the question becomes, okay, Gene, uh, sales manager, when are you going to have the contract modified by? Um, and when are you going to meet with the attorney to get those modifications drafted? And when is the return, attorney going to have that stuff back to you by? And when are you going to have an answer for this group? And that is the point where the 800-pound gorilla comes out of the woodwork and starts breathing down Gene's neck. And Gene does not want to face the 800-pound gorilla because in his calendar, not only does he have to hypothetically answer how much time is it going to take, he has to actually commit a section of his calendar to making that happen. So the 800-pound gorilla in strategic planning is the calendar. It's the calendar of every individual who's responsible for leading a section of that strategic plan. Ultimately, it's the calendar of the leadership team. So if you can get Gene to commit and face down the 800-pound gorilla, guess what? The contract gets modified, and you can proceed to the next step, which might be training the salespeople. So the... uh, one of the things we're going to do is commission a market study so that the salespeople have some new information to use in their sales pitch. And So who's going to commission the market study? Well, we know Gene, this first, we want it to happen quickly. We want Gene completely focused on getting these contract amendments done and pushed through with the attorney in short order. Um, Sue, you're head of customer service, and you guys are going to be talking to a lot of these people on the phone as they call in. So it makes sense if Gene's tied up, it makes sense for you to commission the market study. Um, you need to go out and find two competing firms that we can get bids from to perform the market study. When are you going to do that? And when are you going to have an answer back for this group so that we can, a recommendation for the group so we can make a decision? And now Sue has to face down the 800 pound gorilla and she's got to look at her calendar and go, well, I've got a training that I have to do on this day, and we've got a new employee that's starting on this day. It's going to take up a lot of my time. I'm not going to be able to do that until next Wednesday. And she has to look the group in the eye and decide whether that's acceptable or not and, and face down the group now. So this 800-pound gorilla is really about committing time to the things that you say you're going to do. And I guess if you wanted to get really deep, it's about the value of integrity. You know, is, does the group do what it says it's going to do? So I don't think that there's any, like a lot of the stuff I do, I don't think that there's a lot of rocket science to this strategic planning stuff. But there are a few critical areas that you can see companies fall off the rails. You can watch it happen. And this 800-pound gorilla stuff is when you see people looking at their shoes not wanting to make commitments and maybe it's out of fear that they won't be able to live up to the group's expectations maybe sometimes you find out that it's because they don't really believe in the strategic plan and that's a very important thing to know because if you have one detractor on the team who went to the offsite and nodded their head and gave great input but they haven't completely bought in you're going to find out the level of their buy-in once you ask them to start making specific commitments and spending their time on stuff. So the 800-pound gorilla, while it's a little bit scary, is also tremendously valuable in getting progress made in the strategic plan. So let me know what you think about this 800-pound gorilla. Let me know about your experiences. I know a lot of you have been involved in strategic planning in the past and have had to deal with it. Uh, Maybe you've had your own 800-pound gorilla. But Put your comments in the show notes at axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 008, and we'll start a discussion there about it. 
Also, if you would, if you enjoy the content you're hearing, if it's valuable to you, go ahead and leave a a review on iTunes. That will definitely help us get the word out and uh, be valuable to people who are looking for something in this spot. As always, I thank you for your time. Uh, I have a lot of fun doing this. I love to hear from you guys. So please give me a shout out and uh, love to talk to you. Until next week, this is Joy Brandon and the Axiom Podcast.